Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky, and this is Oh God, What Now? Let's meet the panel. First up, it's commentator Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. Hi, Dorian. Alex, uh, the COVID inquiry story rolls on. Boris Johnson has decided to bypass the Cabinet Office and volunteer his WhatsApp messages to Baroness Hallett because he's a a famously honest man. Uh, But Sunak is going to the High Court to avoid having to share some messages. Uh, Why? Why are they doing this? I don't say this to be facetious, but the answer is pretty simple and inescapable because he knows what's in them. Um... I mean, ultimately, that's what it comes down what to. What Johnson knows what's in his, but Sunak no, doesn't. No, no, Sunak. Oh, Sunak oh okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, reputationally, the damage for the government is huge. The inquiry was set up by this government that it is now having to threaten with criminal sanction in order to get from it the data that it needs to do the job it was charged by the government to do. Um I mean, its two aims are shot to bits, which were to provide closure for for bereaved families of people who died of COVID and to learn lessons for the future. So this move now means the the people who needed closure will forever think that government is trying to cover something up and the lessons won't be learned because it just delays the process. And I have rarely seen uh, legal opinion so united in thinking that the prospects of success of this legal action are very, very low. I, I don't think I've seen a single person who thinks the cabinet office can prevail. So, what's Sunak's argument? What, is is this about the fact that not all of these messages are relevant? Yes, the argument is that they involve private messages of junior staff. I mean, I find that laughable. By the way, this is the same uh, government that basically hung junior staff out to dry. They all paid um, fines for parties, while everyone more senior lawyered up and disappeared into the ether. Um, they've been looking after their their junior staff very, very badly. So the idea that they're suddenly now protecting them is bunkum, as far as I'm concerned. But also, their claim is that this stuff is private, right? That some of it is irrelevant and it's very private. But the point is they're not handing it to a newspaper to publish. (laughs) Right. They're They're handing it to a senior judge that they appointed who presumably, if she sees a text that is all about someone having an affair and nothing to do with COVID, she's not going to put it in her final report, is she? The point is that's her job. Her job is to decide what's relevant and what isn't. Um, You can't have the people being investigated deciding what evidence the judge gets to see. It's ridiculous. And, And the act is worded in such a clear way that I genuinely cannot see any judge not siding with their fellow judge. Ros Taylor is Podmasters contributing editor and host of Jam Tomorrow. Hello, Ros. Hello. People will have been celebrating this week because the Australia trade deal signed in December 2021 is now in force. It's due to boost the economy by an ecstatic 0.08% by 2035. Um, now, in recent months, people like Brexit former Environment Secretary George Eustace have said it was a bad deal. Um, Did the government blow it and is it reluctant to make a fuss about it now it's actually kicked in? Liz Truss certainly thought that the government had blown it. She was reportedly quite irate. she would know. Yes, she would know. I mean, uh, as as Foreign Secretary at the time. So what seems to have happened here is that Boris Johnson had a nice boozy dinner 
with some lamb and some wine with the Australians. And he began to see the Australians' point of view and began to sympathise with it. And apparently in the course of this dinner, he actually apologised to the Australians for Britain having joined the EU in the first place. <laughs> because, you know, it was a, as, as he saw it, it was a snub to the Commonwealth. Now, Johnson is actually really keen on Australia. He spent some of his gap year there teaching. So he's, he's got affinities with Australia. So what I think happened was that he decided to ignore the right, the quite complex technical detail involved in this deal and just go with the principles and go with what he felt. And the technical detail is quite complex. It comes down to something which I won't go into too much detail about called carcass weight equivalence, which is basically how much a cow weighs. And the question is whether you weigh the cow based on the actual cuts that will come off the cow when you uh, when it is cut up and sold, or whether you weigh the whole cow with all the stuff that we don't eat, like bones and, and so on. And what he did was basically uh, cut a deal which was advantageous to Australia because it was based on the product weight and not the total weight of the carcass. And that meant that the quotas were filled in a way that was uh, advantageous to Australia. So Australia will be celebrating this more than we will. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't think it bothers them too much either way, to be honest. I, I'm not sure that they're staying awake at night in Sydney over this. And from what I can hear, it isn't an actual massive, massive deal breaker because there's just not the values involved are not that high. But nonetheless, it's uh, an indicator of the way Johnson does things and the way he, inverted commas, negotiates. <laughs> Our guest this week is a political commentator, co-host of the Trawl podcast, a regular on the Jeremy Vine show, Marina Perkins. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. You've had more opportunities than most to smack down Tories on live TV, uh, so it's Anne Widdicombe and, and, and Mogg, in the last few months. Is that, do GB News, uh, for the, in the, the case of Mogg, do they book you for the fireworks or have they stopped, have they stopped asking? So GB News would ask me maybe once a fortnight and I always say no. No, absolutely not. Not going on that, t- not that channel. I didn't want to give it any validation. I didn't want to give credence to the crap that they spout. So... I always said no. And then I got a message from Jacob Reese Mogg's producer and something told me I had to go and do that interview because how many times do you see him? In, he in particular is one of those I really detest because of the lies that come out of his mouth and he's never held to account. He's always interviewed, I think, by client journalists or a very supine press. And so I just thought this is my shot to go and try and, you know, call out all the hypocrisy, call out all of the lies. And what GB News, I don't think, had prepared themselves for. They thought I was going in there to talk about culture wars and Roald Dahl being rewritten, but I just saw it as my one and only shot. I'm not going back on there. Right. To hijack the conversation and steer it in the way I wanted to. Because I make fun of people like Mog um, from a distance, like a coward. Is it emotionally satisfying to do it to his face? It is. I'm not going to lie. I was shaking like a shitting dog. I was really quite nervous. I had so much to say. I knew I had a very small window in which to say it. Um, but yes, it was really satisfying to land a couple of punches on him. But then I was also berating myself for the fact that I had so much more to say and I didn't get the chance to do it. But yes, certainly satisfying. And also with Anne Widdicombe, I really enjoyed winding her up. 
Um, I think it was the very least I could do, given all the damage she's inflicted. Well, I hope uh, that somebody is foolish enough to um, give you the opportunity to um, rip a hole in another one of them. First this week, some commentators are claiming there really isn't much clear blue water between Labour and the Tories at the moment. The post-Corbyn left has been saying this for ages, but now pundits are talking about a return to the post-war consensus known as butskillism after the Tory Rab Butler and Labour's Hugh Gateskill. Stuck with the surnames Hunt and Reeves, The Guardian's Larry Elliott has gone with revantism, while The Economist prefers the Dickensian <laughs> Mr. Heaves. Um, you, you work with what you've got. Um, but a recent Guardian leader talked instead about the death of consensus. So is this a real thing or just the latest way for top commentators to keep themselves entertained between now and the next election? Roz, um, let us be generous to Mr. Heaves. What is the evidence for this convergence, alleged convergence? There's quite a lot in a way. I mean, both parties know that taxes need to be high at the moment. Both parties think that Brexit needs to be made a success of. On defence, there's really not much to choose between them. And on Ukraine, of course, there's, I don't think, you know, there's a cigarette paper of difference between the parties on Ukraine. And on migration, too. I mean, Starmer is keen to get legal migration down and illegal migration down. And so is Rishi Sunak. Well, I wonder the, what happens in a time of crisis is often this this consensus. Ukraine is a crisis. Inflation is a crisis. So Sunak's economic policy seems to be interventionist by necessity, not desire. Like he doesn't want to subsidise energy bills. And you might say the same about Labour's Brexit policy, that this is not a kind of burning desire of theirs. So does it make sense to talk about ideological affinity or are we just talking about a time where the big issues have aligned uh, maybe immigration is a different one here. But with some of these, you wouldn't expect a massive uh, disagreement on Ukraine, for example. Yeah, I mean, there are differences between them. I mean, these are both pragmatic stances. But if you tease them apart, there are key differences. Sunax is driven by economic necessity and what happened under Liz Truss, basically, and yeah. the need to regain credibility after that shit show. Labour's Brexit policy, on the other hand, is really about optics. It's about not alienating Leave voters. It's about not reopening a division that Starmer would say was very, very damaging for British politics. And really, that is what drives it. The Labour Party's official position is that only by not talking about Brexit can you really have the space to talk about other things. Only by detoxifying the whole conversation and taking remain and leave away can you do that. And it recognises that most Britons don't want to talk about Brexit, either because it's boring or because they see it as a done deal and what can you do about it now? Or because perhaps they don't want to confront a bad decision that they may not wish to revisit in hindsight. I find something weird about the way that Sunak has talked about it already, because on economics and social issues, Sunak is more right wing than Johnson. Like he certainly doesn't have the populist flair due to his sort of weird AI Ed Miliband tribute style in, uh, in interviews. That's leader of the opposition, Ed Miliband, not groovy uh, current front bencher Ed Miliband. Um, what, why is he still not seen as such? People still sort of seem to think, oh, he's sort of a moderate centrist. Well, he gives the impression of modernity, doesn't he? He gives the impression of being fairly young, uh, of being diverse, I mean, a certain chat GPT element to the way he talks, which perhaps feels quite modern. I mean, that is belied by the fact of his elite education and 
his beliefs, of course, are hamstrung by the need to keep taxes high and drive down inflation, which are his overwhelming priorities. He basically hasn't got any fiscal headroom, as you say at the moment. He hasn't got a lot of choice about what he does. Jeremy Hunt is telling him what needs to be done, and he is doing that. That's an uncomfortable position to be in. But on the other hand, it does make him seem like a pragmatic dude who just wants to get the job done. And I think that's what people respond to. Yeah, it's a, it's a case of not being able to do what he really wants to do is perhaps key to his popularity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's not. He's clearly not such an ideologue as Liz Truss was. The so, contrast there is is quite sharp. She was someone who was prepared to do stuff which was clearly insane in the service of ideology. He, by <laughs> contrast, is not. What he will do or would do were he have the ch- have the chance to govern when he wasn't under these kinds of fiscal constraints. Now that's the question. So don't let Rishi be Rishi. That's no. the strategic advice. No, there. no, because I mean, God knows what would happen then. Alex, imagine I am a disgruntled Corbynite. Um, can you give us the counter argument? It's not too difficult, Dorian. <laughs> I'm disgruntled. I'm certainly disgruntled. Um, how do you give the counter argument? Like the, the, the real areas of serious disagreement between Sunak Hunt and Starmer Reeves that, 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 that goes against this. Okay, so I can give... I'll give you a couple of examples, and the first one I will use is one that Roz used, because I think it's handy to look at how positions can look superficially the same, but be fundamentally different, okay? And that's our relationship with the EU. Now that the UK has removed itself from the political part of the union, right? The question of relationship, cooperation, trade, divergence versus convergence, etc., is still being treated primarily by the Tory party as an ideological issue. But it's being treated by the Labour Party as primarily an economic issue, which is what it is, Mm. right? Those two things, even if at the moment they take you to the same broad, inane conclusion that we must make Brexit work, reveal, I think, a huge difference in the approach and what the two parties are trying to to achieve, right? So essentially the convulsions of the Tory party over Brexit are getting in the way of a rational economic policy, and they're not at the moment for Labour. The second example I would use is industrial strategy, and I think this is a huge difference between the two. Sunak is opposed to having an industrial strategy of any kind, He's actually against having an industrial strategy. He sees it as interventionist. He sees it as picking winners. Labour are very much in the Biden camp that says, pick your sectors, pick your industries and create the environment, both in terms of regulation and subsidy for them to thrive, right? And that's what the the EU and the US are doing at the moment. So there you have two things that may superficially look similar, But actually, if you dig down uh, into them, the two parties are moving from a completely different place. So what do you make of this revantism? I love saying it. It's like music. Revantism um, (laughs) argument. Because I I got to be honest, I I don't buy this at all. Because with with anything, you know, so many things, you you can point to a list of similarities, but then you can just ignore all the differences. And I I was surprised that there was suddenly a flurry of pieces um, about this. Do you do you think there's anything in it? Um, I mean, there is there is something in it, because as Ros said, quite rightly, the economic 
circumstances are so constrained, which means that the parties are constrained in, in what they can offer and what they can pay for in terms of policy, even though they tend towards different directions, right? Um, but let me give you again, let me answer you again by way of an example and use another thing that Rose mentioned, which is the reaction to the energy crisis, right? There is a difference between being proactively interventionist and reactively interventionist. And the conservative go governments of the last 13 years ha have been characterized by governing by essay crisis. They are constantly reacting to events. So when the energy, um, uh, the energy crisis happened, there is a difference between saying, I will pay everyone's bills above a certain level. And there's a difference between what a labor government would do, I think, which is we will cap the wholesale price. We will make the energy companies eat the difference, which is what happened in France. That is something that actually controls inflation and puts money in people's pocket. The, the Tory um, thing, even though it amounts to the same broad uh, policy and, and costs the same amount of money, puts that money in the energy company's area, uh, pockets instead and fuels inflation. Big, big difference, right? Yeah, right. Marina, moving on from economics, how close are they on cultural issues? Because Starmer is, uh, as a friend of mine put it, a, a bit of a cop by nature. Um, is he really a social conservative when you consider perhaps the views expressed at the, uh, at the National Conservatism Conference the, the other week? Obviously, we had some very extreme views there and obviously Starmer is nowhere near that. But I'm a bit concerned that to try and win back these like red wall voters, he is moving more and more to that sort of right of centre ground. And on certain things, there has been a failure to whip the Lords, for example, to oppose things, um, which says he maybe he is moving in that direction. So, for example, the public order bill, which really clamped down on our ability to protest, that was able to pass. And even now, uh, the government are trying, it's very sneaky and sinister what they're doing, actually. They're trying to use secondary legislation to bypass Parliament and overturn a decision that was made in the Lords to make that public order bill even more authoritarian. And it sounds like, it looks like, on the 13th of June, when this is going to be tabled, this fatal motion uh, by Baroness Ginny Jones, that the Labour, whip, the Labour Lords are not going to be whipped to oppose this. So that tells me that he he doesn't want to he doesn't want to annoy all the people that actually hate these just stop oil and extinction rebellion protesters. He doesn't want to annoy them, and the same goes for sort of um, immigration as well. So he's very much in favour of the points based immigration system. He he talks about how the British economy needs to be weaned off its immigration immigration dependency. So that makes me feel like again he's he is moving towards that sort of social conservatism, which again leaves people quite politically homeless because if they don't feel that way. If they, if they don't see immigration as, as something that needs to be clamped down on, and they do see the public order bill for the authoritarian assault on democracy, which, which it is, then where do they put their vote? So is it right? Because it's three and a half years since the last election, and it still seems to be like the top line of Labour thinking is always like, don't offend the Red Wall. And that seems to be still driving uh, the train, despite all of the various ways in which the Tories have crumbled since and the ways in which, you know, what we've learned from the local elections and so so on. So, I mean, I don't 
know how strongly Starmer feels about these things. Like I said, on public order, you know, he's a former DPP. Maybe he's he's kind of into that. He's looking at results. So they have done, they've looked at the data, they've done a calculation, which is, do you know what? He's going to annoy a whole load of would-be Labour voters. But those would-be Labour voters might not vote Labour, but they certainly aren't voting Tory. And I think that's the calculation he's made. And he is just, when you hear him now, he's talking about forming government, forming government, and that's all he's talking about now. The problem the problem is, though, that right now they are not in government. They are in opposition. And they need to be showing us in opposition what they stand for and opposing some of these awful bills that are going through, and they're not doing that. Rods, New Labour had set texts and thought leaders, not all of which have aged well. Um but I wonder, compared to the right, I mean, there's certainly ideas on the right. They seem generally appalling. But, you know, you see national conservatism. That's a whole thing. There is obviously not a left equivalent because the left has been has been uh, sidelined. Does Starmer have big thinkers? Does he want any? I'm not sure that he does. Of course, Blair had Anthony Giddens with his third way. Third way was fundamentally a triangulation between other things. So in a sense, not particularly original. But what is Starmer? I mean, his his supporters say... If you can pin him down, it's over his attachment to values rather than doctrines. And certainly that's consistent with the way that he's dealt with the Corbynistas in his party. He's deeply, I think, attached to the, the law, as Marina was po- pointing out as a former DPP. He believes in the power of the law to change lives in a positive way. That's a very loyally approach. It's in tune with the way that Tony Blair, who was also, of course, a lawyer, thought. And it links in with his promise of constitutional reform that Gordon Brown's into, which you don't hear a lot about but at the moment, but I think could be quite a big element of, if not the first, the second, the second term. Another big thing is respect, and this goes into the values idea. So he's been drawing on a German idea that Olaf Scholz has been pushing, Ausrespect. Uh, it's about respecting particularly working people. And in practice, that means respecting them, for example, if they voted leave. It's about the dignity of labour. You'll have heard him talk about his father being a toolmaker and how he didn't I feel. Have heard that. Yeah, yeah. And, and and how he didn't feel that his father was respected in the job that he did. And those ideas around dignity of labour are also quite present on the right. You see David Goodhart putting them across, for example, in his work. Uh, and that feeds in. There's an element of sort of what used to be called blue labour as well going on there. But I think the respect one is also interesting because it's about taking care not to berate people and belittle them as not progressive enough. And that is, as he sees it, a key difference with the Corbyn era, where you can never be pure enough, you can never be left-wing enough, you can never be a good enough person. Starmer wants to leave that behind in Labour thinking. But is he leaving behind too much other stuff? I mean, there's, he hasn't actually uh, caved on this, but some Labour front benches want to rename the £140 billion Green Prosperity Plan because they're scared of the word green. Um, But on multiple fronts, voters, you know, have become more progressive, including the environment. So sure, you know, there are certain values, you know, like just respect and and dignity and so on, which are really sort of, you know, they're they're not tribal. Um, But does that mean that anything that just sounds a little bit left wing, exciting, you know, radical, dare we say it, is taboo. No, it doesn't. I think he will keep hold of the green labelling because it's 
a point of difference in a way with the unions especially because there are a couple of big unions who came out today and said that they were worried about their members losing jobs on North Sea oil projects because the Labour Party has said that they will stop new projects in the North Sea, not stop drilling altogether, but just stop new ones. Uh, But that raises the spectre of things like the coal miners in the 1980s and it it awakens all kinds of old worries in the Labour Party about uh, what happens if you go too far and if people lose their jobs. The Green Prosperity Plan doesn't have an awful lot of detail at the moment. We do know that what he wants to do is massively boost renewables, like more wind farms, more solar, more so- and so on. There's less of subsidising people to insulate the houses, for example, mm. which is really expensive and really complicated and really open to the kind of low-level corruption uh, and difficulties that have afflicted previous efforts to, to do this. Another reason why people are sceptical, though, about the green labelling is because Joe Biden went with the Inflation Reduction Act for his big green thing. Now, actually, the Inflation Reduction Act is all about pushing green projects. But when he branded it as the Inflation Reduction Act, it didn't sound like that. It sounded mm-hmm. like this is you're getting, getting inflation down for the common man. But there are always, there's always going to be an element uh, in in Labour politics that says, well, that's all very well, but what about the hospitals? Where's the money for the hospitals going to come from? Look at the state of the NHS. What the hell are we doing about that? Why? How can green things possibly be a priority when we know that people are saying we're fed up with the state of the NHS and we want something done about it? I suppose the difference is Biden was in power, so he could call it that, push it through. Nobody, There's no time for anybody to complain. You're in opposition. You know, the labelling matters. Um, Alex, I want to ask you about something that Starmer said in a, in a speech. We talks about how, he, you know, he likes progressive ambition, but it must never become unmoored from working people need for stability, for order, security, um, which I don't know, they sound a little creepy when you put them all together. But in, yeah, they're not bad things. We must understand there are precious things in our way of life, in our environment, in our communities, that it is our responsibility to protect, and preserve and to pass on to future generations. If that sounds conservative, then let me tell you, I don't care. Um Given that the Conservatives have perhaps given up on conserving things, is that a decent space? I mean, it does seem, you know, to, to basically take the word conservative from them, but also make it run alongside progressive. Does that make sense to you? I guess so. Uh, I, I mean, that is essentially the, the historical position of the Labour Party, right? The, the Labour Party has rarely been one of... Um, you know, let's kick the table over. Um, but but you understand what I mean. It has been a party of of a gradual change of, you know, nudging um, society and economics to favour um, the the majority of working people rather than the richest people. And so I I think that's pretty pretty close to the tradition of the Labour Party. I don't, I don't think it's a huge departure. Um, well, I guess it's a departure from what Corbyn wanted to do, which was change everything now. Um, and I do have some sympathy with that. And this is something that I wrote about uh, a lot after um, some, in, some on the left became very disillusioned with um, Alexis Tsipras in Greece. And I was trying to explain that, you know, the people who always pay for revolutions are the people closest to the precipice. You know, it's always the relatively comfortable bourgeois people that demand a revolution. 
but the people that uh, uh, that are very close to the edge um they can't afford a massive upheaval for them you have to make change a gradual process. Uh, Marina, finally, you're in the prediction seat, I'm afraid. Um, we're obviously not going to know what's in the manifestos for a long time. But what do you suspect the main dividing line will be at the next election? I think the dividing line for voters will be anything to get the Tories out. Uh, and I think if you look at their policies and what, what they're talking about at the moment, like you say, there isn't that much difference between them. There's nothing really compelling that Labour have got now since they ditched so many of those core pledges. Potentially, you know, they're talking about being this clean energy superpower that could could win over potential, you know, green votes and abolishing the non-DOM tax status, I think will appeal to lots of people who just don't like the massive growing inequality um, in in our society. But the things like the NHS pledges, you know, to train more doctors, more nurses or the police, they're all very much, you know, the things you would hear on, on the Tory side of the fence. So I'm not sure. It depends if they're going to put out any rabbits of the hat. But I think as we stand now, people will just be voting not for the Tories because they don't want them. Whatever we hear about the declining sales of the daily press, Britain is still very much a newspaper society. When you tot up the number of papers read per head of population, we are seventh in the world. The newspapers can still drive us into a rage, they can make us laugh, they can make us despair, and they can still break stories that set the national agenda. And they're the subject of a brand new podcast from the House of Podmasters, which brings you Oh God, What Now? The Bunker and Origin Story. It's called Paper Cuts. It's the modern newspaper review for busy, busy people. The first episode is out now, and presenter Miranda Sawyer is here to tell us about it. Hello, Miranda. Hello, Dorian. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, so the paper review is uh, is a real stalwart of uh, of British broadcasting. What's the idea behind paper cuts? What's your approach? Well, uh, you're right. It is a kind of stalwart. And the reason why it's a stalwart is because essentially the papers, despite what we kind of think about um, social media, the actual papers set the agenda for what we talk about. That's the kind of point of the papers. And you you know, if, if you look at the papers, the physical papers, or you look at the um, the, the front pages that come out late at night, the day before they come out the next day. That is what kind of leads all the news that goes into the next day. So we thought, well, it would be a good idea to look at this properly rather than just keep kind of refreshing social media feeds and, and just doing thing on, everything online. It's the front pages and the actual contents of these papers that set the agenda. And why don't we have a look at that properly and not in a kind of, you know, Scratch a chin scratchy BBC way, but in a kind of funny and um, hopefully insightful way. Well, you can be more uh, critical, presumably, than the BBC, which basically just has to go, This is in the paper today. <laughs> Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they just kind of waft it on. Don't they? We can analyse a bit as to why a paper might do this. Why is the Telegraph leading with this one? Why has why the Guardian got a different approach? Why is Philip Schofield um, uh, quitting the te- television programme? still on the agenda and we can have a look at that and tell you why and is this is this strictly uh paper and ink um what about um uh, online publications it is strictly paper and ink in, in that we're literally sitting in a studio surrounding by paper so you'll hear us kind of rustling through and we've got different <laughs> people on we've got uh, you, i mean literally you're kind of like rustling through going I, I found this really brilliant headline let's read it out i mean there's lots of different people on it there's kind of john ellidge is on it and 
um, uh, and Alexa von Tunzelman, who's a kind of amazing historian, um, Marie Leconte, who you know very well, and then comedians like Gronje Maguire and Finn Taylor. And what they'll, what we do is we actually look at the physical papers because what you find online is that those stories come on and then they get discussed. But if we've got them first, we can kind of have an analysis of them before they even get online, to be honest. I mean, they are obviously a, a visual, a tactile visual medium. Um, and we've yeah. heard the Today programme presenters uh, laboriously describe <laughs> cartoons um, to great, hilarious effect. Um, <laughs> how, do, how do you deal with that on the podcast? Well, we, I mean, we read the headlines out. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. You read them out. Um, you, you, and you explain them. You make it funny. And it means that you don't have to either listen to the Today program or sit up till 11.30. Um, but also you, because we have time to talk about it in the Today program, they just say, oh, they said this and move on. We have time to talk about it. So we can have a look at the proper, the story in a proper way. And that is the bit that, you know, you don't, you can have the paper in front of you if you really wanted to, but you don't need to because we've read it. We will explain it as uh, how it works. Uh, when does it land on people's audio doorstep? There's one out now. Hooray. Hey. Okay. So, hooray. So we did our first one today, which is um, Monday. So it's going to be Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, and it should um, land at kind of mid morning. If you have a coffee break, you could uh, have a listen to it then. And you can subscribe through, um, through the link on the show notes, actually. So what's your ideal paper cut story then that you're going to get the most chat out of? Well, it would have to combine everything, wouldn't it? And wouldn't it? we could have like a love rat story. Maybe, Love rat Boris Johnson uh, <laughs> romped with some form of posh totty. We could have Megan. So love rat Boris Johnson romped with posh totty Megan. And then we'd have to include the star who obsessed with UFOs. So maybe on a UFO and it caused house prices to rise, which would satisfy the male. So I think we could cover it in that way. Well, that's good. Fingers crossed that the stars align. <laughs> It'll happen, I'm it sure. Will. It will happen for us. Thanks, Miranda. So that's Paper Cuts, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Perfect to tide you over between editions of Oh God, What Now? Now, new work by future Tory candidate Seb Payne's centre-right think tank Onward finds that only 21% of millennials would vote Tory in the next elections and 62% think they deserve to lose. But this doesn't mean they're all left-wing. A big issue for them, apparently, is the tax burden driven by student loan repayments, which leads Onward to wishfully describe them as shy capitalists. Um, Labour has a vague plan for that, reducing monthly payments for graduates. At the same time, Nadim Zahawi, no stranger to reducing tax burdens, has called for scrapping <laughs> inheritance tax, <laughs> claiming that it is morally wrong. So we're going to talk about the generational politics of taxation. Um, Alex, inheritance tax is unpopular even with those who don't pay it, which is in fact most of us. Um, for those who need reminding, what is the uh, what is the case for it? Why is it not morally wrong? That's a Howie piece, man. Have you actually read it? He says he's haunted by the idea of paying tax after he's dead. Well, he's haunted I mean, by the idea of paying tax just, when he's alive. So, <laughs> just yeah, no, but just unpack that. Like, you don't pay tax after you're dead. You don't do much of anything after you're dead because you're dead. He imagines um, presumably a very active afterlife. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, look, there is a very natural instinct, I think, to protect your loved ones. And that does not stop the moment you imagine yourself gone. You want that protection 
to extend beyond your life. And so I think there is an incredibly natural urge to pass things to your loved ones that will make their life more comfortable. Um, but its effects are so demonstrably destructive in terms of just entrenching and growing inequality that the notion of taxing property at the point it passes between generations is as old as really any organized state or any system of taxation. I mean, the ancient Greeks had it, the Romans had it, the, even the feudal uh, state in England, you had to pay money to the king in order to inherit your land and your title. Um, even John Locke uh, advocated that only a fair proportion should pass to your progeny. So, the idea that it's somehow immoral, I think, is very, very new. And it is directly related to an, an a Trojan horse for, really, the idea that all tax is immoral, that actually the state should not get its hands on any of your money, whether you're alive or dead, in any circumstances. And there are people who administer their tax affairs with that principle in mind, right? There are people who will say, okay, I'll pay my fair share, and there are people who employ specialists to minimise their uh, their uh, tax burden. Yeah, I can't I can't name one. Uh, maybe his na- maybe his <laughs> name will pop up in the podcast. Um, now it seems to me that this is very clearly aligning the Tories generally with the interests of the older and the, and the more affluent, or at least yeah. for, if it's younger voters, then it's people who expect to uh, inherit quite a lot of money. Does this intervention have any political utility? Liz Truss backed it, and she's no a firm judge of political utility. So I, I just wondered, why now? I mean, it goes under the general heading, Labour will come after your money, I guess. Um, but I don't know. I, I think it can be quite easily rebuffed. I think a case can be made uh, for a fair taxation system. And I think, actually, the fact that Sunak and Starmer have disclosed their tax affairs will become a big, big electoral issue. You asked Marina earlier to uh, predict what the battlegrounds will be. I think this will be one of them, actually, uh, because the notion that Sunak's effective tax rate was 22% on an income of 3.7 million, while Starmer's was 33% on an income of 350 grand, and a new graduate on 35K a year pays over 50%, there is no way to justify that. It's just manifestly, painfully, undeniably ludicrous and needs to change. And so I think this will be a battleground going forward. Marina, Starmer has dropped his post-Corbyn pledge to abolish tuition fees um, due to, he says, the financial circumstances of the nation, but says Labour will find, quote, a fairer solution. It's, there's not a lot of details uh, so far. What, what are Labour offering? Yeah, really disappointing that they've dropped this. I think another potential vote winner for the younger generation sort of lost lost opportunity there. Now he's saying obviously that there is it's because you know when he goes into power he's going to inherit this very broken economy, empty treasury, and um, he he's making these plans or he's setting that now accordingly. What he has said so far, he's not giving much away, but he's talking about um, introducing something that's going to bring down the those students. Uh, tuition fee monthly repayments, so student loan monthly repayments, which I think is going to, going back to what Alice was talking about, I think it's going to be about reforming 
um, what the Tories brought in, I think it was last year, where they've made it so that you start paying earlier. So you start paying like 25k rather than 27k. And also you pay for longer. So rather than it be 30 years, and then it's wiped, whatever you haven't paid is wiped, it's now 40 years. And what happens at the moment, since that was introduced, is that if you are, basically, you're penalised the less you earn, because you end up taking longer to pay it back. So you pay more and more interest on it. So I think possibly what he's talking about there is making some amends. But this to me is just, it's, it's sadly, I feel like it's tinkering around the edges. Yes, it will help. I think it, it, you know, it works out about £60 a month, for example, that a nurse would have to pay back. So we're talking about, yeah, it will help, but it's not going to revolutionise this. And I think what we could potentially see here is if we keep going in this direction, I speak to my niece and nephew, for example, about what they're thinking about university is that only the very wealthy, I think, will start to see university as an option with these sort of spiraling costs we're talking about £9,250 per year so people are coming out saddled with debt so I think unless he does something more than just this tinkering around the edges which is what I predict um, I don't think it's going to do much to overhaul the system. Is the problem with uh, younger people turning against the Tories in such huge numbers which has been going on for, for a while obviously we saw this um, in the Corbyn years is it the problem then that they become the people that you take for granted just as Scotch, Scottish people were once the people you took for granted or indeed people in the Red Wall were the people you took for granted and we saw what happened there? Is there basically, there's just not enough of an incentive to, to make a big pledge to that demographic? Possibly, but I don't know why. I, I feel like that age group is becoming more and more engaged. And especially if you give them something to engage with, then they will. But at the moment, if you're just backing out on on promises that actually would have appealed to them, then you're just missing a massive trick there. I think something needs to be done to speak to these people who are, you know, we're seeing that generation is the first generation now that's going to do worse than their parents. So mm. someone needs to speak to them and someone needs to give them something of value and something of, of positivity and optimism because they've had their opportunities dashed. They've had their, you know, ability to go and work and live and retire, whatever, in, in, in the EU dashed. They need something to cling on to. And it, no one is offering them anything. I mean, Ross, this this report got a lot of coverage, but essentially it was just putting numbers on something that we we all knew. Um, so why are millennials bucking the usual trend of, of moving right as you got older? Well, we should be alive to Onward's agenda here because its basic purpose is to try and drag the Tories a little bit more to the centre and to make them more electable. And so <laughs> it is therefore in the author's interest, including Seb Payne himself, to uh, suggest that fundamentally millennials are pretty right wing uh, and the potential is there. They're not a write off and they can be won over. So there's that going on. But why are they not moving to uh, the, the right? Well, for all the things we've we've just talked about, this very high marginal tax rate that they have, thanks to student loans, there's no proper childcare. Uh, there are promises down the line for more childcare, but which are not going to happen for another three years at least, which is not very much use when you're pregnant now, for example. And the inability to get uh, onto the housing ladder. Um, and the fact that the Tory party seems to be more interested in uh, preserving the rights of existing property owners than in 
interested in, in building new houses. And the overall impression is that the social contract is not working for them. And while they pay a lot of tax, they're not getting anything back. And you can use that to say that they're shy capitalists and so on. But I think the, the point is deeper. It's that there's a fundamental intergenerational problem, which I don't think this report really addresses. Well, I don't run a think tank, so what do I know? Um, but it seems fairly logical that if young people uh, can't buy homes and start families for the various very real material uh, circumstances you're talking about, they are less likely to vote Tory, uh, traditionally the party of the uh, homeowning family. And millennials are overtaking boomers as the biggest chunk of the electorate. So even if the Tories didn't care about people, just imagine if they didn't. Um, even if then, if only out of ruthless <laughs> self-interest, they should have a policy answer for this. They should have a way, which I suppose is what Onward is saying, of like creating the circumstances which might lead people to be Tory. And so I suppose like that that is perhaps what surprised me, even if you were being rather mercenary about this. You wouldn't have ended up in a situation where everyone under 14, in fact, it, it sort of goes up a bit, actually. You're actually getting into the 40s, you know. Um it just just hates the Tories because they're they're getting nothing from them. Yeah, I, the the thing is that they have they have relied on the greying vote uh, and the very greying vote, as you say, <laughs> more than just forties and under for so long that that is baked into their core support. And if they lose that core support, they really are totally screwed. And Yet the things that they could do to make life easier for younger people, such as a big house building program, would directly, as these older people see it, attack their the value of their assets. So the more homes that are out there, the more house prices might not go up all the time so much. And that would make people who already own, own homes feel poorer. They wouldn't like that. They also know that in many of their key strongholds where they are still powerful, they're very vulnerable to the Lib Dems once they start trying to build things. And we've seen this in a number of by-elections where there's a massive backlash against the Tories if they try to push something through and the Lib Dems come through and win these places because the Lib Dems attitude mm. can be quite flexible on this subject. It's very difficult once you've, once you've doubled down on this particular group to then say, oh, well, we don't mind about you so very, because, I mean, that's the only core support they've got left. I don't want to knock older people because some of my family are older people. But it does seem that when it comes to sometimes inheritance tax or uh, private education, it's all just like you've got to do the best for your kids. And when it comes to allowing houses to be built that your children might be able to live in or doing things about climate change, then the needs of your children's generation, grandchildren's generation don't seem so um, important. Well, it's about the the uh, primacy of the individual and, you know, your right to make a free choice uh, on behalf of your kids. And this comes back to inheritance tax as well. Mm. The objection to inheritance tax, tax is so often, well, I've made, you know, I've got this money and I want to leave it to my kids. I don't want the, government, the state to take it away and do God knows what with it. I want the people I love to benefit. And it's about doing the best for your family and not really a wider sense of what might benefit society as a whole. Alex, we've just talked about the economics here, but how important are social issues, uh, either in the Onward report or in your, uh, your own opinion, in driving uh, millennials away from the Tories? I mean, I think that that Onward report, by the way, was, was grossly over-reported, to be honest, um, because basically what it said was that young people don't hate 
Sunak as much as they hate the Conservative Party, but they still hate both. Um, so, and this somehow turned into a little bit of magical thinking reminiscent of what Labour were doing in the early days of 2019, where they were saying, be, be, you know, despite all the polls showing that we're heading for a thrashing, there is some magical uh, constituency of voters out there that will suddenly come to the fore and vote for us and rescue us. Um, but but th- what there is plenty of evidence for I think is that the older people get the the less they like upheaval, the less they cope well with change, the less they they like flux, and that's always been interpreted as they move towards the right, right, or they 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 don't like social change. But I don't think that's the case because the conservatives in the last decade have become the party of upheaval. They have become the party of constant flux. And so I think that's where Starmer's move to sort of claim a progressive conservatism fits into here. He's appealing to those voters exactly. And the other factor that I think is very relevant is the state of the NHS because I think when you're older – the thing that matters most to you is that you call for an ambulance and it fucking shows up. And I think the Tories are vastly underestimating the the how big of an issue the NHS will be at the coming election if it continues to fall apart at the seams as it is now. Because I think that is a, a, a security much more basic than financial security to know that if you have a stroke, someone's actually going to turn up and treat you. Um, and, and so whatever benefit they think they can derive from agitating on social issues and talking about inheritance tax, I think it will be cancelled entirely by basically their managerial incompetence, their incompetence in managing the country's big institutions, the economy, the NHS, the school system, the, you know, there, there is a basic managerial incompetence there that has crept in the last few years that people see every day in their lives. And the more Sunak stands on the podium and says, everything is fine, everything is heading in the right direction, the bigger the gap is between that and what people see in their everyday life. Marina, what do you think uh, is the role that social issues are playing in this because obviously the Tories have they are leaning into into various cultural issues which again is is often uh, means a generational divide I think that the social issues that the they're, they're playing but they're not going to win the next election on anything else right they're not going to win the next election on the state of the economy on the NHS on schools they have got nothing left and so they are using this these these cultural culture wars as a distraction tactic, but was what they do is they do they manage to infuriate so many people. People get caught up in them. Even people with the most, you know, honest intentions get caught up in them, and we end up squabbling amongst ourselves. All the while, we are distracted from what's going on above us and the absolute shredding of our con- economy and, for example, the NHS institutions that you talked about. And it's it's very successful. There's a reason they're doing it, and. They are. I mean, Deputy uh, Chairman Lee Anderson, he actually admitted as much in an interview. He said the quiet bit out loud and he actually said they will be fighting the next issue, the next election on things like trans issues. And I and I think I just hope the electorate are able to take a second and think about what actually impacts their everyday lives. Is it is it these cultural issues, these culture wars or is it the fundamental stuff like 
whether an ambulance is going to turn up when you're having a stroke. We see. I don't think it is. I don't think it's going to be successful at all. I don't think it is going to distract people because the, the the other problems, the material problems, are so large. I also think it helps in burning down their future, the Tories' future, by basically saying to younger, you know, who are really overwhelmingly, uh, you know, socially liberal. Not everybody, but you know, a, a clear majority, and they're going to kind of find, as I do, quite a lot of this stuff like disgusting and repellent. So it, I, I just, to be honest, I find it crazy. I know you say you've got, they've got nothing left, but I find it crazy that they think that that is going to be a tactic. When, when let's face it, their future depends on not making everybody under 40 throw up when they see the Tory logo. Finally, Philip Schofield says his career is over after admitting he lied about an affair with a much younger runner on ITV's This Morning. Uh, You may have uh, heard about this in the news. Why has this been such a big story? And when can disgraced celebrities expect forgiveness? To quote Holly Willoughby, are you okay? (laughs) Marina, this has been an enormous scandal. Day after day of coverage, a marquee interview with the BBC's Amal Rajan. Um, Holly Willoughby looked like she'd... uh, apologising to the members of a, of a cult uh, for the misbehaviour of the Maharishi. Does it merit attention? So surely not this much attention. So I, I get a little bit depressed at how much attention this has actually received in this country because I understand, by the way, I understand that, you know, Phil and Holly, they're almost like national treasures. They are beamed into people's living rooms. It's, a, it's supposed to be a family-friendly show with family-friendly values and what we've seen as a result of this is it's, it's an explosion of that, right? It was, it's, and actually it makes people think he's not the person that they thought he was all these years. And I think that's probably destabilised a lot of people who tune in every morning. And I understand that. I am a little bit gutted, I guess, at the sad state of affairs because people are so consumed by this when how much does this actually impact their lives you know, Philip Schofield, he's not a public servant. He is a celebrity. And in fact, Marina Hyde um, wrote a really compelling piece in The Guardian. And she she pointed this out, actually. She said, um, you know, almost 60 members of parliament, three of whom were, were ministers at the time, are facing allegations of sexual misconduct. Right. It's almost systemic. And that's within our parliament so these are the people making and shaping our laws. And also the, the concern there is a lot of this, a lot of what would have, got, would have gone on there, not consensual. What Philip Schofield did, you know, uh, not unwise, but not illegal, was consensual as far as we know. The stuff that's going on in Parliament, not consensual. So his TV career is over, but you're saying he could run for Parliament? <laughs> essentially, <laughs> essentially. And, and I don't think, by the way... In fact, he should. He, and he'd probably do very well. <laughs> but I don't, I don't think that... <laughs> I think he. I don't think his career, TV career is over. I think his TV career in that particular field, family friendly, as I said, magazine, morning magazine show. I think that's done. But he could certainly crop up again. You know, wait till the dust settles on. I don't know a Channel Four evening program, whatever. I think he'll be. He'll be fine. We'll look forward to Philip Schofield after dark. <laughs> um, Alex, do you think it would have been as big a scandal with a with a heterosexual relationship? We are talking about. You know, after quite a few years now of Me Too, where there've been mm. a, mo, mo, the majority of those scandals were were, were um, heterosexual. How much do you think um, his gayness plays into this? Look, there are there are interesting things to discuss here, but I'm I don't particularly want to attach them to Philip Schofield because I don't know 
the the real story. I don't know what's still to come out. I don't know how much ITV knew. I don't know whether it had happened before. I, you know, or what their work relationship was. And so I don't I don't particularly want to attach these points to excusing Philip Schofield some somehow. But in more general terms, I mean, there is a well-known Hollywood megastar known for never having dated anyone sort of uh, older than early 20s who met his last girlfriend aged 10. You know, last week uh, we saw media largely talking fairly in fairly innocently about an 83-year-old Al Pacino um, impregnating his 29-year-old girlfriend. And yes, there were a few ewes, but, you know, there was certainly no one questioning the power differential in that relationship. So would the reaction had been less hysterical had this been a story about, I don't know, a laddie, TV personality like Jeremy Clarkson having an affair with a 20-something junior producer, I don't think it would have been, hand on heart. My my instinct tells me it would have passed a lot quicker. Um, but, but then the second point I want to make is that these stories, I think, ignore the, the actual psychology involved in these relationships, right? Because especially when they involved a man who came out very, very late in life. Let me tell you, as an out, uh, out and proud gay man who had been in my early 20s and very hot and, and had a penchant for older men, I can tell you that when I had relationships with older men, especially ones that were quite innocent because they'd come out very late in life, the power rested with me. It did not rest with them. And so I think there's a there's a strange thing going on here where we ignore actually the power and the allure of youth in those situations, uh, and that seems quite strange to me. Um, like you know, like I said, I've been in that kind of relationship, and it felt like I could get those men to do anything I wanted, rather than somehow being taken advantage of. So I, I mean, I don't like I said, I don't want to attach it to the specific because I don't know what that situation was, but I do think there is a there is, there, there has been an ick note to the coverage that wouldn't have been there with a straight affair well Russ, there's a lot that we don't know that's why maybe why it has been such a weird story because initially it was like he's fallen out with holly i don't never watch this show i, I have very little connection with them as people but i just thought oh they've fallen out with holly and then there was a weird thing with his brother being convicted um of crimes and there was all this stuff and i was like i have no idea what this is about. i literally have no idea and all the news stories like wouldn't tell you exactly what it was about and then this thing comes out and there's all this other stuff we don't know so we're going to leave the specifics there but in the interview he obviously looks broken he's not looking for redemption he's going i'm done now um do you think the general public likes the chance to forgive rather than banish people forever because we we talk so much about cancel culture and i i do wonder um whether that zeal to sort of see people essentially vanish from the face of the earth is is perhaps overstated and that there is an there is another urge once the scandals died down to let people back i think there is in this case because the key problem seems to have been that he lied about the relationship that he had to someone whether it was holly willoughby or his itv bosses and that 
is not an indication, if you like, as cancel culture sometimes is, of a fundamental wrong thinking, if you like. It's it's he. I think we need to understand, in a way, why why he lied and why the structures and the norms and the prejudices of daytime TV led him to lie about a gay relationship. It's very sad in a way because I, I feel with Schofield, he feels a little bit behind the times. And as Alex said, he came out quite late. Mm. He's clearly been uncomfortable with his sexuality. And he's wanted to stay in the closet or because he's been worried about the effect that it might have on his career if he did come out. And that feels quite almost 10, 20 years ago. You know, if he'd been kind of come out and been quite, yeah, I'm gay and that's me now and that, but he didn't. And I think that people have some sympathy with that. I found it sad to see that someone should be all over the front pages for so long on a matter of, you know, just just being slightly embarrassed about your sexuality mm. and not being wholly honest about it with the people you work with, which, let's face it, is not a bloody crime. But it, it's something, it says something about that culture, that the nature of his celebrity. You know, there's, there's a lot of talk about separating the art from the artists. Uh, there's a book I really enjoy that came out recently, Monsters by Claire Dederer. Um, and, you know, it's wrestling with, you know, how do you feel like Rome Polanski or Michael Jackson? And where there's something that you don't want to let go of, but it's a lot easier to let go of this morning half of this morning um, than like Chinatown or Thriller isn't it there's not a lot of I don't think I mean art and artist are not the terms of <laughs> terms of art here are they in, in a way it makes it more difficult for him though because you know no, that's what not, I'm saying he's not leaving behind Thriller and, no, nobody's yeah. like got this internal struggle where they're like but I really want to re-watch old episodes of this morning <laughs> Like it's it's a very precarious kind of celebrity, isn't it? Yeah, and as I said, it, it, it's the way that he's had to compromise and and lie in order to meet the demands of that particular kind of celebrity and the norms that it still expects from its presenters is testimony to the fact that you know it's it's not he's he's had to make himself into the image of a nice heterosexual married man, and he's had such difficulties when he realised that he wasn't actually a heterosexual or a man anymore. And it, it's, I think it must be, it must be hard for him in a way to think, well, I, you know, I'll look back and think, well, what, 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 what have I achieved? You know, I've got Dancing on Ice. I've got Good Morning. I haven't got, I haven't got Thriller. What do I do now? Where do I go? Where's my life? What have I achieved? For me, that would make it more difficult. I just think of Gordon. I only know him from Gordon the Gopher, you see. So that, to me, is his his thriller. <laughs> but also, don't you think that there is the other aspect that's not talked about is that, you know, certain tabloids do have an agenda. They do have a very different attitude towards people who they consider woke and people they consider their own tribe. Um, there's definitely a naughty and a nice list. Uh, and... I get the sense that the Sun and the Mail and newspapers like that cannot get, wait to take down a peg or two celebrities that they see as not part of their tribe. Um, and I'm sure that also fuels the fact that he was on every front page every day. And also it was parliamentary recess. So it was a relatively quiet news week. That also didn't help. Marina, finally, what do you make of... This idea, these, these sort of two things I have running in my head. One is there's constant talk about how, how, how you know, how brutal and, and judgmental and cancelly we've become. And yet many uh, celebrities who have had scandals, I'm not talking on, on the level of a, a Harvey Weinstein here, um, but many so-called cancel celebrities, you know, seem to have uh, seem to have come back. Uh, there are people who 
whose careers you thought were were over. You know, I'm thinking of for you know very different reasons. But um, Mel Gibson making movies, people seem to people seem to dig him. Um, so do you find that perhaps the idea that once somebody is cancelled, they're done, and this is terribly awful, perhaps like overstated, and that there is actually more more of a route back? I think it depends on the person. It depends on the uh, level of sort of public support and admiration. It depends on the crime, if it were a crime or just a misdemeanor. I think it depends on lots of things. So you know, people like Jonathan Leslie never made their way back onto the TV, but Richard Bacon did, for example. So. Uh, it, it very much depends on where they are also in their in their career, I think, as well, and the things that they go on to do afterwards. But I think Philip Schofield, I, I don't think I don't think his career is over by any stretch. We've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for escape routes. Uh, what baubles from outside the world of politics have our panel been enjoying this week? Ros? Well, I'm judging a book prize, and this involves the most enormous amount of reading, as you might expect. Uh, I've been sent about well, 70, 80 books already. It's the Historical Writers Association Nonfiction Prize. Mm. And it's it's almost like going back to university in a way, uh, because you know, you've you've got you've suddenly got a reading list and you've got to you've got to tackle it and you've got to give these these texts a go and you end up looking at stuff that you normally wouldn't, which is really good and really healthy and gets you out of your comfort zone. Um the last big thing I judged was a very long time ago and it was the Royal Mail letter writing competition for kids. Um which I was shorter. Yes. Right? Sure. Oh, it was so sweet. Of course, it doesn't exist anymore because obviously the kids don't write letters anymore. But that was great because uh, the judging panel was um, Cherie Blair and uh, a famous children's author, uh, Jacqueline Wilson. Um, and that, that was that was enormous fun. But this, yes, that, that, that was a lot shorter. And this is one hell of a lot longer. Yikes. Uh, Marina. I haven't read a book in two and a half years since having my first child. So, uh, and I've now got a seven month old as well. So, um, but the, the, but the good thing to come out of that actually is that my seven month old is going through a sleep regression, which means I'm now up at about 4am and I am finally watching the third series of succession. I have not finished it. Uh, I think I'm three episodes in watching it literally when the rest of the world is asleep, but it is, thoroughly enjoyable and it makes getting up at that time a little bit more bearable and I'd forgotten just how impressive those characters are and how it's incredible because not a single one of them is likable <laughs> it's such brilliant script writing have you managed to avoid all the the avalanche of spoilers for the so I think it actually t- it told me something about my um, my Twitter feed because I have and I think that tells you I am so single minded in my in my Twitter feed that it's so political <laughs> that nothing nothing else permeates there was there were no succession spoilers in there oh that's good uh, Alex I'm afraid uh, uh, this is not a recommendation <laughs> I've had COVID for the first time um, for the last ten days. And I just wanted to use this opportunity to say to people, do be careful. It's still around. It's fucking awful. You get like different debilitating symptoms every two days. It's basically like catching six consecutive different strains of flu, one right after the other. And everything is hugely expensive now. You have to, you have to pay like seven quid for a, a box of five tests. So, um, yeah, not fun. Do be careful. Do look after yourselves. Oh, sorry, Alex. I didn't realise you were in COVID newbie. No, I'm a virgin. We never forget your first time. 
Uh, <laughs> mine is uh, Poker Face, on, which you can watch on Sky or Now. Um, it's the sort of Columbo-esque show from Natasha Leon from Russian Doll and uh, Ryan Johnson from Knives Out. And it's just unbelievably entertaining. It's a murder of the week, Columbo style. You, sh- you are shown the murder first and then you have to watch as she unravels it. But the level of craft is astonishing how constructed it is. The fact that she's not a cop and so therefore has no power to arrest them once she's uh, uncovered the murder. And also because she's moving across America, starting out in Vegas and moving east, each one is its own little drama about a particular corner of American life, about a barbecue restaurant in Texas or just like a kind of mall in New Mexico. The latest one that I've seen was about um, a sort of struggling punk rock group in middle age looking for their comeback hit. And so each one is its own little character-based drama, but you have all the pleasure of, you know, how is she going to unravel the crime? And I just cannot think of a more entertaining show. It sounds tremendous. Where is it on? Uh, it's on Sky slash now. So basically, if you could, if you are capable of watching Succession, then you are capable of watching this one. Please do not complain <laughs> okay. if you do not have access to these streaming services. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you so much to Ros Taylor. Thank you. Alex Andreu. My pleasure. And our guest, Marina Perkis. Thank you. In the meantime, here is our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. See you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreu and Ross Taylor. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Oh God, What Now?